Rhubarb, my caffeine-riddled friends. International interest in Antarctica waned after the trifecta of visits by French, American and British expeditions. With little prospect to profit by returning to the areas those visits charted, and apparently impenetrable ice blocking the way further south at all longitudes visited to date, other activities gained priority over further southern exploration. European nations competed fiercely in carving up the colonial opportunities they perceived in Africa and Asia. The Northwest Passage also received a lot of attention after James Clark Ross's return from Antarctica, though many of the voyages in that direction comprised attempts to find out what happened to Franklin's doomed ass. Americans busied themselves with expansion to the western regions of their continent, fought a war against Mexico, and then another war against themselves. Antarctica requires time and energy nations can only afford when other concerns are in hand, or when resource depletion makes even the hard yards necessary to operate in the far south appear profitable. One notable visit to the White Continent in this period is that of Mercator Cooper. An American whaling captain, Cooper's first claim to fame came when he rescued 11 Japanese mariners from a disabled ship in the islands south of Japan in March 1845. Sailing them to Tokyo, the Tokugawa shogunate's policy of Sokoku, a system of strictly controlled border interactions that effectively cut Japan off from the outside world for over 200 years, prevented Cooper from taking his ship, the Manhattan, into the harbour. A longboat, crewed by the Japanese sailors, went ashore and negotiated that the Manhattan be allowed to berth. In this first visit to Tokyo Harbour by outsiders since the Sokaku Policies Institution, Cooper's hosts were polite and accommodating. They vittled the ship and refused any payment, but made it clear that Cooper should never return. A chart of the Japanese islands liberated from the stricken ship was submitted to the US government on Cooper's return, and is rumoured to have been employed in Commodore Matthew Perry's gunboat diplomacy visit to Japan in 1856, which marked the beginning of the end of Japanese isolationism. But, after all this Cooper hoopla, in 1851, Mercator Cooper sailed the whale ship Levant south in search of seals and whales based on Ross's descriptions of the Antarctic and its resources. His visit to Victoria Land, in an area now known as the Oates Coast, offers us the first well-documented landing on the continent proper on the 27th of January, 1853. Noting large numbers of penguins but no seals, Cooper sailed the Levant north again. We'll make a brief note here about two historical developments that primed the pump for the whale rush the series is due to address in coming episodes. The first is a resurgence in corsetry. Whale oil prices declined due to increasing use of kerosene and gas in lighting and petroleum-based oils in machinery through the middle years of the 19th century, but baleen, the bristly plates of keratinous protein lining the jaws of the filter-feeding whale species, underwent price fluctuations depending on what was going on in fashion. Baleen is malleable when heated, and will retain any shape you give it before it cools. Tortoise shell has the same thermoplastic properties, and in an age before thermoplastic plastics, demand for these natural products saw tremendous pressure put on their respective manufacturers, whales and turtles. In addition to the manufacture of umbrellas, buggy whips, back scratches and other implements where the strength and flexibility of baleen would not be matched until plastics technology took off in the 20th century, 
baleen was used in making garment supports for women's clothing and bracing in the range of bondage implements known collectively as corsetry. Among the many international impacts of the French Revolution, a loosening of European corsets is often overlooked, but relaxed policing of clothing mores saw many women released from a necessity to conform to male ideals of form and apparel, with a consequent easing of pressure on whale populations as the price of baleen fell. The Victorians were having none of this women being comfortable in making choices for themselves, and an evangelical zeal to put women back on their pedestal, their curves enhanced by corsetry and covered up by crinolines, also reinforced with whale mouthparts, saw baleen prices on the rise. Whales. So hot right now. The other development was the invention of the explosive-tipped harpoon by Norwegian Svend Foyd in 1864. Other attempts to produce rocket-propelled harpoons produced mixed results, but Foyne got it just right, depending on how you feel about harpoons. Fired from a cannon mounted at the bow of a steam-powered chaser boat, the heavy iron harpoon carried an explosive charge into the whale's flesh. The explosion, if not killing the whale outright, at least put a crimp in its day and prevented it fighting for its life at full strength. Winches coupled to the steam engine of the chase boat took care of any fight the animal had left in it. The whalers now had the speed and the stopping power necessary to go after the faster rockwool whales. Less buoyant than their bow-mouthed cousins, the newly opened rockwool killing industry necessitated the invention of a compressor system that could inflate a rockwool corpse and keep it afloat until processing was complete. With the baleen price hike and advances in whale killing technology coinciding in this way, the scene was set for mass slaughter. So, with the Northern Hemisphere preoccupied with wars, colonialism and Franklin's corpse, and with Southern Ocean whales ignored while the oil and baleen markets were still stocked by more northerly cetacean populations, Antarctica fell off the radar for a couple of decades. German whaler Edward Dahlmann went to sea in 1845 at the age of 15, kicking off a distinguished career as a mariner just as the dust was settling on the French, American and British voyages. After putting 20 years' experience under his belt, he began to captain whaling vessels. He gained sufficient experience in this role that when shipowner Albert Rosenthal, eager to increase German investment and returns from whaling, funded the German Polar Navigation Society, it was Dahlmann they commissioned to sail the steamer Groenland in search of profitable whaling grounds around the Antarctic Peninsula as Arctic populations of readily whalable whales waned. Departing in 1873, Dahlman arrived in the South Shetlands to find that fur seals and fur sealers had repopulated during the fallow period since the late 1830s, with a British team ashore wreaking the customary bloody havoc among the pinnipeds. Dahlman discovered the channel separating the Palmer Archipelago from Graham Land, which he named the Bismarck Strait, and the New Mayer Channel. Citing plenty of rockwools but few right whales, and yet to re-equip with Foyne's new implements of blubbery doom, Dullman attempted to make good on the voyage with seal skins, but with the recovered population of fur seals already taking a fresh battering from eager sealers, the haul was not sufficient to warrant a repeat performance on Rosenthal's coin. Fur seal skins, increasingly rare and therefore more valuable than at the height of the industry, just weren't obtainable in quantities sufficient to make the long and dangerous voyage worthwhile, so long as easier profits still lay in hand further north. Rosenthal's money went elsewhere, 
and Dahlman went on to try sailing barges along ice-choked Siberian rivers on a commission from the Russian financier Johann Ludwig Baron von Knup. While Dahlman was putting in his yards around the tip of the peninsula, a new and fascinating science was hitting its straps aboard the HMS Challenger. Oceanography draws together data from ecology, geology, hydrography, astronomy, climatology, and a host of other disciplines in an attempt to draw a big picture of the seas and what goes on in them. Ocean from the Greek word for ocean, and graph from the Greek word for graph. Until the late 1860s, waters beyond the 300 fathom mark, 300 fathoms is about equivalent to 550 metres, were thought to be incapable of supporting life. Professor Edwards Forbes of the Natural History Department at Edinburgh University came to this conclusion based on his efforts dredging in the Aegean. The deeper the dredge went, the fewer organisms it caught. Forbes projected from his data that everything below 300 fathoms must be azoic, without animals. Forbes' hypothesis stood for a quarter century, but was tested and falsified by Charles Wyville Thompson and William Carpenter. In 1868 and 1869, Thompson and Carpenter dredged animals from the Benthos in waters to the northwest of Scotland to a depth of 2,000 fathoms, or 3.6 kilometres. Thompson became Professor of Natural History at Edinburgh University, and it was from this footing in Forbes' Dead Man's Boots that he petitioned the Royal Society to fund a worldwide investigation into, quote, everything about the sea, unquote. The Royal Society and the Gladstone-led government backed the project. The Royal Navy made the Corvette Challenger available for the voyage. Square-rigged, with auxiliary steam engine powering a retractable screw rather than paddle wheels. Already at the end of a 14-year service life, the Challenger was converted from a man-of-war to a dedicated survey vessel, the first of its kind. I note here that the newest British survey vessel, slated for commission in 2019, was the focus of an online naming competition as I researched and wrote my notes for this episode. Boaty McBoatface was the clear frontrunner as I pressed record. Never ask the internet anything. The yards at Sheerness removed the Challenger's guns and gutted the magazines, making space available for a darkroom, naturalist labs, chemistry lab, and an aquarium. Quarters for the scientists, far more spacious and well-appointed than anything I've experienced in my maritime travels, if the drawings are reliable, were established and fitted out. Sailing in December 1872 under the command of Captain George Nares, and carrying a crew of 240, six of them comprising the scientific contingent, the Challenger constituted the best-prepared survey vessel to date. With improvements in the tools available to sate oceanographers' need for data surging ahead in the century and a half since the Challenger sailed, no subsequent survey voyage has needed to be as single-mindedly dedicated to a task for as long as the Challenger was. Three and a half years all up, with over 700 days of that time spent at sea. For ten days, crossing the Bay of Biscay, rough conditions precluded any scientific work. When the dredging and soundings kicked off, teething trouble saw a lot of time wasted and equipment lost or damaged, but after a brief stop in Lisbon, the team found their rhythm and sampling ran smoothly. Every 200 nautical miles, the ship would heave to and lower the various sampling and recording equipment. 
In water five kilometres deep, it would take three hours for a dredge to reach the seafloor, another three hours for the ship to drift far enough to constitute a trawl, and hours more hauling in the equipment. While the crew watched the science kick off with great interest, the routine of short transits and waiting for the long periods necessary for each deployment saw fascination shift to indifference, then to boredom. More rocks with a thin veneer of protein and a worm, you say. How very droll. Hm. I would have found it interesting to the very last haul. Nothing's more exciting than winching in sampling gear. It's like Christmas every time, right down to the fact that sometimes all you get is a lump of coal. Magnetic observations, water column temperature and chemistry gradients, depth soundings and biological samples from the benthos and the water column gradually accumulated. In October 1873, the Challenger explored the Eels Kerguelen, sending ashore parties to collect samples, make surveys, and to establish an observatory for measurements of a transit of Venus later in the year. Two fur seals were killed for the biological collection, but the crew witnessed men from two whaling schooners killing many more in a day. The post-seal boom seal population comeback didn't stand much of a chance so long as the price of pelts stayed high enough. The expedition left the Eels Kerguelen on February 11th, 1874. The first iceberg came into view on the 14th, and the Challenger became the first steamship to cross the Antarctic Circle on the 16th. On the 24th, with the dredge in the water, the weather came away in a gale with thick snow. The dredge was hauled in and the ship sheltered in the lee of an iceberg, but a sudden surge saw the jibboom torn off as the ship met the icy flank. The ship got up steam and the storm worsened. With steam up, but visibility made poor by swirling snow, the ship nearly ran into another iceberg. The screw was put astern and orders to make sail given. A sternboard manoeuvre, similar to that used by Ross in similar circumstances, saw the ship pass by the berg by a narrow margin. After another three days of surveying, the Challenger headed for Melbourne, all hands much relieved to leave the area their furthest south record standing at 66 degrees, 40 minutes south. While its time below the circle was short, the Challenger added compelling evidence to the picture of Antarctica as a continental landmass. The further south they deployed the dredge, the more fragments of quartz, granite and sandstone, and the more guaconite-rich mud came on deck. Those rocks and minerals suggest, to the geologically minded, continents. Scattering of these materials in the Southern Ocean by rock-bearing icebergs, carrying debris from glaciers travelling over a continental mantle, for the range and distribution of the geological specimens the dredge brought to light. The expedition also measured a high atmospheric pressure cell over the Antarctic, later demonstrated as a permanent feature of Antarctica. The ship returned to England having covered 68,900 nautical miles, and having sampled at 362 stations. Captain Nares went on to further voyages of exploration in the Arctic, and the scientific crew spent several years analysing and writing up the results of their extensive data sets. Bathymetry, ocean currents, ocean chemistry and marine biology were never so well served by a single project, and few subsequent voyages can match the breadth and scope of the work carried out by the Challenger, even with modern equipment. The first I ever knew of the Challenger came early in my career in marine science, 
when registering some specimen lots in the database of the then Museum of Victoria. A vial already in the box of registered material caught my attention with its oldie-worldy handwritten label. Hey, this specimen's from 1873, I called out to my supervisor, surprised by the age of the material, the next oldest being from almost a century later. My supervisor looked thoughtful for a moment and asked, Was that from the Challenger? I checked the collection notes written neatly in black ink on the tiny square of waterproof paper. Yeah, how'd you know? Instead of answering me, they wandered off. I continued entering data, the lack of an answer far from the most unusual thing in any given day in the cloistered world of museum wet collections, but presently my supervisor returned with one of the many volumes of The Exploring Voyage of the HMS Challenger. It was a bit much to read in one sitting, but that's how I was first alerted to what really well-organised and funded marine research could look like and what it could achieve. Heady stuff for a youngster. A French research station in Tierra del Fuego and a German station on South Georgia provided southern data to European scientific bodies for the International Polar Year 1882-3, a synchronous magnetic and meteorological measurement series supported by 12 nations. While both stations were far from the Antarctic itself, they provided the first link between magnetic activity and auroras. The International Polar Year spurred renewed interest in Antarctica, this time in Australia. The colonies, newly enriched by a gold rush and confident they knew all there was to know about Australia, looked outward. New Guinea looks to be a promising annexation, and while we're at it, we'll have Macquarie Island, Auckland Island and the Campbell Islands too. Of course they naturally belong to Australia. Having grown up with the cultural cringe diminished but still evident in Australia, It's disconcerting to read accounts of such boisterous Australian avarice not couched in terms of British glory. Perhaps gold has that effect. Federation lay only a decade and a half away, so perhaps there's something in that. Imported German botanist Baron Ferdinand von Mueller urged the Victorian Royal Society to mount an expedition and get with the claiming, but nothing came of it in Australia. Fellow German, Jörg von Neumeyer, the government astronomer in Victoria, returned to Germany in 1864, where he picked up as the naval hydrographer. Mulling over Mueller's ideas, Neumeyer proposed an expedition to spend a winter on the continent to gather climatic data for contrast against the Arctic information. Noises from England and Germany spurred renewed interest in Australia. The Association for the Advancement of Science established a committee to foster Antarctic research in 1885. Antarctic intent often follows a pattern of self-reinforcement. One project inspires activity in another, as is often the case in dealing with a frontier. No one wants anyone else to get a jump on their own ambitions for a particular blank slate. Whales and seals formed the focus of much discussion, but climate also received its share of attention based on an intuitive idea that much of Australia's weather was influenced by processes below the circle. Support for an Australian expedition peaked in 1888, but fell away when Britain didn't come to the party with any funding. There's the cultural cringe I thought was missing. So, another two decades of Antarctic ignorance passed in the wake of the Challenger before some whalers chanced their hand in the south once more. Inspired by James Clark Ross's observations, Arctic whaling captain David Gray of Peterhead, Scotland, known to many as the Prince of Whalers, 
though his fortune was more closely reliant on sealing, proposed a whaling voyage to the Weddell Sea. Four ships, fitted with auxiliary steam engines and harpoon cannons, left Dundee in September 1892. The Balaina, Diana, Active and Polar Star carried three naturalists with them, though the expedition was firmly focused on financial returns. One of these naturalists, William Spears Bruce, will feature in future episodes. Finding no right whales, and not fitted out with the full suite of equipment necessary to hunt the rockwells they encountered effectively, the crews turned to sealing, gathering seal oil from elephant seals and skins from fur seals. The naturalists found themselves frustrated, their ambitions to take samples thwarted by the need to kill and process as many seals as possible, though some geological samples of interest to science did make it home. Dundee Island, Joinville Island and the Firth of Tay were added to the charts. Not a lot of exploring, but not nothing either. Norwegian whaler Carl Anton Larsen, a name with Antarctic sticking power, was on the scene at the same time and crossed the path of the Dundee expedition. Larsen was sent south with the whaler Jason to reconnoitre whaling opportunities by Norwegian whaling magnate Kristen Christensen, also leaving home in September 1892. Larsen similarly caught no whales and returned north with his hold full of seal oil and pelts, but Christensen, encouraged by Larsen's reports, sent a second expedition south, comprising the Jason, the Castor and the Hertha. Again, seal oil and seal fur were the take, but the Norwegians were assembling a valuable picture of the ice conditions around Graham Land that would serve later expeditions well. Larsen sailed the Jason south to 68 degrees 10 minutes south, and collected the first Antarctic examples of petrified wood to come to light, inland of Cape Seymour on the Graham Land coast. Foynland, named after Sven Foyn, and Oscar II Land, named after the reigning Norwegian monarch at the time, were discovered and named. Oscar II was also the King of Sweden. Apparently, islands bearing his name were among the many things he was needing. Another voyage with mercantile goals returns some tidbits of valuable information about Antarctica's nature. We round out the history aspects of this episode by noting that the French annexed the Iles Kerguelen and the Crozet Islands by official proclamation in 1893. Ownership by fiat. At around the same time, an Argentinian fisherman sought to reinforce fishing rights around Graham Land by encouraging his government to make a formal claim on the territory. Claiming ceremonies by French and English mariners hadn't been followed up by government proclamations or letters patent and lay sufficiently far in the past that people began to regard them as irrelevant. Seeing as the Germans make their first appearance in the Antarctic narrative this episode, I'll take some liberties with German cultural history to introduce a new segment that's likely to use up increasing volumes of my bandwidth as the series progresses. Ich lieb dich nicht, du liebst mich nicht. Ah, denn da. I usually listen to episodes before releasing them and make any necessary edits to the file before hitting send. Rushing to get episode 19, scurvy, out on what in my chaotic routine counts as time, I didn't run this final check and a sizable error, as opposed to the usual multitude of pronunciation gaffes, editing bungles and inept word and phrasing choices, got incorporated into the finished product. 
I recounted in that episode that Scott's first shot at the pole fell short by 80 nautical miles. I was conflating Scott's first hauling trip and Shackleton's later attempt. I was out by a factor of five in Scott's case, as he didn't get closer than 400 nautical miles before Scurvy saw the team turn back. Even in conflating this with Shackleton's later effort, I got it wrong. Shackleton turned back when 97 nautical miles from the prize. These events will get their own episodes, but I feel like a dumbass for not checking these readily verified facts in the rush to make use of the data storage available to me at the end of February. February.